At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Well, hello and welcome to another Drug Science Podcast. And today I have an eminent psychiatrist from Scotland originally, Professor Alan Young, now down in England in the the very hotbed of British psychiatry at the King's College, the Institute of Psychiatry. Welcome, Alan. Thank you very much, Steve. And I think you may be the first psychiatrist I've had on this program, certainly in terms of which having an English, I keep saying English, but a great British psychiatrist. And I think that reflects several things, you know, partly that British psychiatry up till now hasn't been that interested in the kind of things that the drug science do. And you're breaking the mold there. But also, yeah, I think because you're a psychopharmacologist, and I think you recently were president of the British Association of Psychopharmacology, a great organization that I had a pleasure of also being president of. And I think we share a very common interest in the way in which we can use drugs to not only treat patients, but also explore questions about what's going wrong in the brain with people with various disorders. And of course, in your case, you're specializing in depression. You, I think you run the Depression Research Group at King College, is that right? Well, we specialize in, I'd rather back two horses because I direct the Center for Affective Disorders and I have the chair of mood disorders. And mood disorders tends to mean depressive disorders and bipolar disorders and affective disorders has got a slightly wider meaning. Some people include anxiety disorders and so on. But I thought I'd get two for one when I was choosing names. So. So you, your, but your main research interest, I think, uh, over the years has, has been about depression and, and, and the causation. Is that right? It's been pretty evenly split between depression and bipolar. And when I was coming to King's, they asked me if I wanted to be depression or if I wanted to be bipolar in terms of which clinical service I was involved. And I said I wanted to be involved in both. <laughs> so I said I wanted both, not either. And the reason I did is because there's such an overlap between the two. And to separate our depression from bipolar disorder seems to me not to be good scientifically or for clinical services. So, so I like to think that I covered both today. And I would agree with you. I, I always uh, really enjoyed when I was doing my depression clinics down in Bristol University, having to, to wrestle with the the problems of bipolar depression as well as unipolar depression. But it's interesting that in some places, notably the US, they seem to be in quite a schism between the two. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there's a tendency to, you know, to over-specialize. But I mean, if you look at bipolar disorder, there's two facts that I would present. One is that people with bipolar disorder, about two-thirds of them have two episodes of depression before they ever have an episode of mania or hypomania. So, so the best clinician in the world, who may well be you, David, maybe you know, Professor Adrian James, our college president, or or ever, is not going to get you know, bipolar disorder diagnosis right. 
every time because in two thirds of cases, there'll be a couple of episodes of depression with no signs of bipolar. So that's fact number one. Fact number two is if you specialize in treatment resistant depression, as I do, and you know, many psychiatrists do, about 25% of people with treatment resistant depression will be unveiled as having actual bipolar disorder with a follow up of a few years. So I think those two facts alone mean that you should not really draw some arbitrary line between the two. I mean, you know, I think we're all familiar with the concept of lumping and splitting, you know, psychiatrists who want to think of everything as a big melange or continuum, uh, or psychiatrists who want to break things down into smaller and smaller categories. And I think sometimes you need to do a bit of both, but for service provision, if you don't have clinicians who are experts in both bipolar and depression, you're going to increase the likelihood of mistakes in terms of diagnosis and treatments and so on. No, I can totally, totally agree with that. I mean, it may be that some of our, our listeners don't understand, perhaps the, there might be differences in the depression between bipolar depression and, and, and traditional unipolar depression. Do you want to comment on that? Because I think that there are quite a lot of things we know now about treatment responses which can help differentiate them? Sure. I mean, the first thing to say is that the defining feature of major depressive disorder is a major depressive episode. And in the American Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, you've got to have either low mood or anhedonia, which is loss of pleasure or reward from normal activities. What are those two hallmark symptoms and a range of other symptoms such as, you know, disturbed sleep, appetite, problems and thinking clearly and so on and so forth. In the ICD, it's pretty similar, although uh, fatigue is more prominent than in DSM. And that's got to happen for at least two weeks, although on average, and it's not a normal distribution, but a normal episode is between nine and 16 weeks. Although of course, some patients will be ill for years. Now, a key point is that the diagnostic criteria in DSM are the same for a major depressive disorder, whether it occurs in the context of major depressive or unipolar disorder or bipolar disorder. So, you know, you will diagnose a major depressive episode in bipolar disorder. And therefore that's the cause of the confusion really, because very often a diagnosis of bipolar disorder is based on a history, particularly with bipolar two, where the highs are less pronounced, the so-called hypomania which may not be barn door. I mean, mania is barn door, but not hypomania. So the overlap between the two is even there in the diagnostic criteria. Now, you mentioned that depression is a bit different in bipolar, and that's only a matter of degree. So we have what are called so-called atypical depressive symptoms. Now, the atypical depressive symptoms are where instead of having a wretched lack of sleep, you sleep too much. Instead of having a lack of absolutely no appetite, profound weight loss, you have increased appetite, uh, weight gain, and you're supposed to have uh, particularly prominent fatigue and so-called leaden paralysis of the limbs. There's also a component of so-called emotional sensitivity where you like to get very tearful or upset very easily, but that doesn't seem to be a core component of the syndrome in the big recent studies. Now, these atypical symptoms are not that atypical. In major depressive disorder, they occur in about somewhere between 25 and 30% of people with a major depressive episode. 
But in bipolar disorder, it's maybe 35 to 40%. So it's a bit corner, but it's by no means a distinguishing characteristic. Now, the best, most recent formulation of atypical depression is by Brenda Penix from the Netherlands, who's a marvelous researcher who does a epidemiological study looking at mood disorders in the community in the Netherlands, and she's got great data. And she's identified what she calls immunometabolic depression, which is a reformulation of atypical depression. So it's got the same symptoms because Brenda framed them to cluster in her epidemiological sample, but it doesn't have the sensitivity that I mentioned uh, nearly as prominently as in the classical formulations. Uh, and also they tend to have high BMIs. Sorry, the audience may not be entirely sure. So high, they're, they're overweight is what you're saying. Huh? They're overweight. So high body mass index. So when you have a body mass index above 30, body mass index is quite simple. It's your, it's a measure of your height divided by your weight and the normal range is uh, 20 to 25, though I think that's probably too low, at least for people who are middle-aged. But if you have a BMI of above 30, you're technically obese. And then you tend to have the inflammatory markers present, you tend to have a low background inflammation, and whether you're depressed or not. So this combination of these symptoms, the obesity and the increased inflammatory markers in the body gave rise to what Brenda and Michael Burke and others called a nice paper, a really nice paper, immunometabolic depression. So that probably is a bit calmer in bipolar disorder as well. But one of the arguments for separating unipolar and bipolar depression has certainly in my lifetime been around treatment response with bipolars not being that responsive to classical SSRIs. Is that still accepted? Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting because... There has been a real paucity of studies of antidepressants in bipolar depression because, if I can sound like a cognitive therapist for a moment here, Dave, the underlying assumption is that somehow bipolar depression is just the same as unipolar depression. Now, there's a number of problems with that. There's been a long-standing worry coming from the United States, and I think it's not entirely ill-founded that antidepressants might spark off switch into mania or rapid cycling, which is four or more episodes in a year and is a very difficult subtype of bipolar disorder to treat. And so there's been very few studies. The biggest study was actually done by myself and uh, colleagues from the United States uh, with the drug company AstraZeneca. We were actually looking at quetiapine, which is an antipsychotic, which proved to be antidepressant in bipolar 1 and bipolar 2 depression. That's the two main subtypes. But we had two comparators. We had lithium and we had paroxetine, which is an SSRI. And this is the biggest study that's ever been, ever been done of antidepressant monotherapy. So that's just the antidepressant and bipolar 1 and bipolar 2. And Sue McElroy, my our friend and colleague from Cincinnati, was the lead author on the paroxetine paper, and I was the lead author on the lithium paper. What we found was very interesting. We found that SSRIs, paroxetine in this case, was not associated with a significantly greater antidepressant response than placebo, although it did cause a significant benefit in the anxiety uh, symptoms. Now, as you know, Dave, and I'm sure you'll remember, there was always a notion amongst clinicians that proxtine was the best SSRI for anxiety. So I'm not sure we can extrapolate that, but there is some evidence of benefit for helping anxiety, although nothing better than placebo for helping depression. 
The question therefore arises, did it cause manic switch or did it spark off rapid cycling? Well, it didn't seem to spark off rapid cycling as far as we could see. Um, there was manic switch of about 10%, just over 10% in the paroxetine alone group. But there was also a manic switch of about 9.5% in the placebo group. So this didn't differ. Right. Uh, now, you might say if we'd studied rather than a couple hundred patients, a couple of thousand patients, it might have made it, it might have been a significant difference, but also it might disappear. So my take on this is that SSRIs, at least, are, you know, not as bad as we feared in bipolar, bipolar depression. Uh, they may help anxiety, and there's a caveat that that may be particularly paroxetine, but they don't appear to be, at least when given alone, particularly antidepressants. Now, of course, some of the old drugs may have a different profile, both in terms of benefits and harms. I don't know if you want me to briefly go through that. Yes, I think for many people, depression is synonymous with some kind of serotonin deficiency, which paroxetine would have ameliorated, but you're showing in bipolar depression it, it isn't. Uh, so what is it? <laughs> well, I'm saying there's a positive information. You know, unlike the meta-analyses, for example, the one done by Cipriani, Andrea Cipriani from Oxford, which there was 116,000 people in trials in depression with antidepressants, you're talking about probably less than 1% of that with bipolar depression. So there's a real lack of evidence apart from everything else. But I do mention the, it's called the Embolden study, because that didn't really show evidence of much benefit, but it didn't show evidence of much harm. The two old drugs I'm thinking about are tricyclics, drugs like, you know, amitriptyline and nortriptyline. They seem to be worse for causing manic switch and possibly rapid cycling. And the oldest antidepressants, or at least the oldest of the modern era, which is the irreversible MEOIs, you know, the ones where you can't eat cheese and drink pork, so without having a hypertensive reaction. There's a, an old literature, and you remember Donald Klein from New York, who was a, yes. one of the first psychopharmacologists, and Donald always said, and I think he had some evidence, and evidence from Pittsburgh, that the irreversible MEOIs, drugs like phenylzine and mm -hmm. isocarboxazid and channel-separating drugs we still use here, are particularly good for the atypical depression. Uh, and we still use that, and as you know, Dave, we've done an awful lot of work on anxiety, these drugs are also quite good for, for they anxiety are. disorders. So the old drugs have a role where you know, there's different profiles for each of these. Although one of the frustrations of teaching uh, residents and trainees psychiatrists at the moment is they tend to get taught that all antidepressants are the same. And uh, they tend not to be educated to use the older drugs, which is great, uh, a great limitation of practice because the old drugs have got much to recommend them if used carefully. Well, that was one of the reasons I was uh, was trying to to explore this with you because it's also sort of paradoxical, isn't it, that so-called antipsychotic, which was quetiapine started out to be, turns out to be an antidepressant in bipolar depression. Can you explain that? Well, I mean, I think there's a general rule in medicine and particularly in psychiatry with treatments is that they never work out quite the way you planned, and you know that's why we introduce. You know, we have drugs which were originally anticonvulsants like lamotrigine, still used as anticonvulsants, but are, seem to be useful for preventing bipolar depression and even mania. So um, I think there are differences with the antipsychotics pharmacologically. I mean, they're all anti-manic and they're all antipsychotic, but the only, there's only a few of them have been shown to be convincingly 
antidepressant, foremost amongst those is quetiapine. So there's some evidence for lorazidone and possibly cabriprazine. And so if you think about, you know, the pharmacology, they're all D2 antagonists, which is likely to be common anti-manic agents. So you, just to be clear for the audience that aren't psychopharmacologists, D2 means dopamine receptor D2. Yes, the D2 hypodermic receptor. That's right. But there's going to be other pharmacological actions, possibly on, you know, other catecholamine receptors like your norepinephrine receptors or your 5-HT7 receptor, for example, or rhizodone, which or your 5-HT1A, which may be important. So I think it's important that we we have the capacity to examine all potential treatment options and trials and all indications, which I, I think probably leads us quite nicely to psychedelics. <laughs> well, except they don't work if you're on quetiapine, but we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll come back to that later. Actually, I want to take you back to the beginning when I first met you, because you turned up, you turned up in Oxford when I was, uh, when I was there as a lecturer, a senior lecturer, and with a particular interest in stress, I seem to recall, in cortisol and depression. Can you share that, that interest and those, that research with us? Yeah, absolutely. So I had the great opportunity as a trainee psychiatrist to, to do a PhD, something that's, you know, NIHR to their great credit, welcome and so on, uh, sponsor a lot now, MRC. But back in the 80s, it was comparatively rare for a, a trainee psychiatrist to be able to do a PhD. And I had the great uh, benefit of doing it with one of your longtime friends, uh, Professor Guy Goodwin. And Guy uh, thought that well, he said to me, there's two and a half facts in biological psychiatry. <laughs> <laughs> so the full fact number one was that genes play a role, which I think is probably still a full fact. Fact number two is that drugs work, and that's probably still a fact. And fact, half fact, so to make up two and a half facts, <laughs> was that uh, stress has got something to do with severe mood disorders. So he's, he set me off to to look at that. And I must say, it was a great education in in science. And it's the type of thing that perhaps if people could experience more more widely, then the world, the world might be different than the way it was. Because Guy and I designed a set of experiments in animals, and we thought we knew the answer already. And we just had to do the experiments to confirm what was so obviously true. Now, that may sound a bit ridiculous, but I'm struck by the fact today that in lots of spheres of life, including in people that comment on psychopharmacology, but in other things, people think they intuitively know the answer or <laughs> it's obvious that that's the yes. answer. Yes. And I had the very sobering experience of finding out that what was obviously the answer wasn't. So if I could explain a bit more. Yes. We thought that the 5-HT receptors particularly 5-HT1A, were very key to antidepressant response and to depression. And we further thought that the stress hormones would interfere with neurotransmission or the way that these receptors work. So the causal mechanism seemed quite simple. You got stressed, your cortisol went up, which we knew happened. Mm -hmm. Your cortisol interfered with your 5-HT neurotransmission. Uh, bingo! That was how you got depressed. Oh, you can see the little diagram in your head. So guys sent yep. me off for a couple of years to the lab, and I gave animals, uh, rats and mice, high levels of corticosterone, which is the, the rodent version of cortisol, appropriate stress model. 
And I looked at receptor function and I found no effect of uh, this blocking of the stress hormones blocking the uh, receptor function. So it, essentially what we thought uh, was just, you know, filling in uh, the data to show that the belief was true ended up by us showing that the belief was wrong. Now, what we did find was that if anything, the stress hormones had an effect that was a bit antidepressant or a bit like antidepressants. And particularly, they seemed to dampen down some of the inhibitory 5-HT receptors, such as the one in the cell body. So so we published all this. And I, I started, I remember I coined the phrase just to myself, that the stress hormone was God's antidepressant because it seemed to me that what, rather than actually causing depression, the stress hormones were an attempt to bolster mood. And of course, that shouldn't be that Oh, I see. So the raised cortisol, which is characteristic of, or certainly common in some people with depression, could be a protective agent rather than a causative agent. Well, that was radical. Yeah. If you go back to thinking about why we have the stress response, I mean, the stress response is all about promoting survival. So it's all about marshalling your, your glucose and so on and so forth. And the fact that it would bolster mood in the short term, of course, clinicians know that these drugs, if anything, cause an uplift in mood. What what happens? Yeah, because you you see that clinically, don't you? Well, I mean, I've seen this clinically recently. I mean, I have a lady who's in her late sixties. She's a patient of mine, and she was given fludrocortisone by the geriatricians for falls. And this is a peripheral steroid. It works more on one of the steroid stress receptors than the other, but it's put her from being chronically depressed into very very slightly high, but not where it's a problem. <laughs> and I looked up and, you know, there is the odd small trial. So so I think the notion that the stress hormones cause depression is probably wrong. What they seem to do is to be a, a sort of way of, of the body trying to counteract depression. But what they do do, and this is quite clear, is impair cognition. And that was actually something that we then went to researching and spent the next 20 years looking at the effects of stress hormones on cognition. And that is a particular problem in bipolar, isn't it? That the, you get cognitive problems which end up being you know, maybe not as impairing as the mood swings, but certainly meaningful. Well, the cognitive problems in both unipolar and bipolar are the biggest single contributor to psychosocial dysfunction because people can't perform as well at work. So, of course, the mood episodes are terrible, but remember in bipolar and unipolar, they they usually are episodic. But the cognition is related to the number of mood episodes and actually is quite disabling. Now, we're not talking about the amount of cognitive impairment that would be equate to dementia or some such, but it's enough so that people who previously functioned at quite a high level can't do that anymore. It's very analogous to the brain fog that we're hearing about with COVID actually. And the steroids seem to play a role in this. You know, we gave steroids to normal volunteers, you know, for just a week or two, and it impairs their cognition, and then that's reversible. There's work from experimental animals showing you can do this. And we did a series of studies when I was in Newcastle and with colleagues in Newcastle showing that if you block the steroids with a steroid receptor antagonist, you actually enhance cognition. So I think there's still quite a lot to be done in looking at improving cognitive outcomes, some of which we've done with drugs, and I've mentioned the stress hormone antagonists, but we've also done other 
studies recently looking at um, cognitive mediation strategies, which are non-pharmacological, and they seem to work as well. And then the obvious thing to do is to combine the two to see if you can really help these people to the, the maximum. Maybe explain a little what cognitive remediation therapy is, because I'm not sure many people would have heard of that. Well, cognitive remediation therapies, I mean, there's, there's a number of different types, but we do the type which was developed by Professor Dean Tilwikes, my colleague here, for people with schizophrenia. Now, people with schizophrenia have a cognitive impairment which is different in terms of the trajectory of development from that of people with mood disorder. So the Dunedin studies, you know the Dunedin studies very well, Dave, the New Zealand studies where they looked at a large number of school children, followed them up for a couple of decades and looked at people who developed schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. And they'd done pretty simple pencil and paper tests of cognitive ability in the first decade of life and the second decade and so on and so forth. Uh, the kids who grew up to develop schizophrenia on average were impaired compared to their peers in the first decade of life, well before they developed schizophrenia. And this is because, I mean, this is a key plank of the neurodevelopmental model of uh, schizophrenia. So you've got a cognitive impairment. Again, you know, this is something that you only see in a group. You'll get some people with schizophrenia above average and so on and so forth. But as a group, they tend to be below average. And then there's a bit of a drop off with the third, the first episode, but then it stabilizes and only very gently declines over time. And the situation with bipolar disorder is very different. The kids who developed bipolar disorder in the first decade, second decade of life were actually two thirds of a standard deviation better on average. Wow, their IQ was enhanced. Yeah, well, I mean, we find this repeatedly. Not all people with bipolar disorder are, you know, are very bright, but they do tend on average to have 10 IQ points extra. And, you know, in our studies, it's always IQs are always about 112 or something like that. Hang on, wait a second. You said that kind of just to make sure that, so everyone knows that the IQ scores are structured. So 100 is, is the midpoint, right? So 110 is quite the, is 10% more than the average, right? Yeah, and a standard deviation is 15. So, you know, you'd probably only find a small percentage of the population with an IQ above, you know, 130. But, you know, people that are involved with patients with bipolar disorder know that they are very often very bright and very talented. And this is why the loss of those abilities hurts so much, you know, because they could do more. Anyway, so they're brighter before, and then they, they tend to lose, on average, cognitive ability with each episode. And uh, the big question is whether this is progressive or whether it's reversible. Our recent study with cognitive remediation tends to show that it's reversible, certainly with the cognitive remediation, which was originally designed for schizophrenia, which has, has an effect in schizophrenia, but not a huge effect. The effect on bipolar disorder in the pilot study, it's only a pilot study. We're doing a, we're doing a much bigger follow-up study with in London, Oxford, and Birmingham, which is just about to start. But the pilot study, which had 60 people in it, showed remarkable benefits, which were pretty enduring on all the different aspects of cognition. And that's just from this computerized package that goes on for a few months where people do exercises, they, they have a therapist that takes them through various different strategies. There's a debate about whether you're actually enhancing the core cognitive components like memory and so on and so forth, or, and I think this is what people like Till believe, and I think she's probably right, you're 
enhancing what they call metacognitive abilities. So that's the ability to learn new strategies to work around your strengths and weaknesses, to put it very, I put it very bluntly. Anyway, so that's a bit about the difference between in cognitive impairment. Now, there is a subgroup of people with bipolar, and that's the group of people in bipolar that tend to have more relatives with schizophrenia, and they tend not to respond to lithium, at least in the Canadian cohorts, who will probably have more of a trajectory of the cognitive impairment like people with schizophrenia, obviously. Fantastic. And then, obviously, you've started off in Scotland, and then you've been in Oxford and Newcastle, and you've also been at Imperial with me, and then you've gone off, off to the Institute of Psychiatry, Ecology and Neuroscience, I think it's called now. Yes, it's called that this week, yeah. <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of interest there in immune dysfunction in depression as well, isn't there? And I suppose that is reflected in part by that comment you made about the immunometabolic syndrome. I mean, that seems to be a very interesting and growing area. What, what is your take on, on, on the relationship between immune activity and depression? Well, we've always known this. And I mean, when I worked in Newcastle with the great Donald Eccleston and Nicole Ferrier, I mean, we produced a paper on post-viral depression. Post-viral depression has always been gone. But the idea was really resurrected by Ed Bull Loring. Well, hang on, wait, just tell us about post-viral. Not everyone will know about this. You know, this is this like post-COVID depression? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, lots of people do know about it. I mean, they know about it from glandular fever, what the Americans call mono, you know, infectious mononucleosis. And everyone will know that after that, some people get depressed and it lasts for months. I mean, one of my children's, one of their friends had uh, glandular fever in their 20s and it took them six months to get back on their feet. And they had a depressive illness, actually. It was quite clear. So that's been known about. But I suppose what was different with what Ed Bulmer and Carmini Parianti, who's our lead, is they thought they'd look at the depressed population and look at people who might have these inflammatory markers, these cytokines and so on. And of course, it's not just Carmini here. Tony Clear, my other colleague, and Becky Strawbridge have done lots of work on this as well. And I think this is still a, a work in evolution. My own personal suspicion is that it might be this immunometabolic subgroup that Brenda talks about. And we're actually thinking about, with the eating disorders specialist here, Hubertus and Ulrika Schmidt and so on, we're actually thinking about doing a diet as a treatment for depression. We've got a trial about to start uh, for people who've got the BMI above 30 inflammatory markers, seeing if actually just reducing that by losing weight, a bit like the type 2 diabetes story where if you lost weight, you some people went into remission from diabetes. Same might happen with depression. But Ed, Carmini, and the others, and there's a whole consortium across the across the UK, have done lots of work collecting a big cohort. So Valeria Mondelli is another one of our leaders in this with Carmini here. And they've looked at the inflammatory markers, the treatment response, and there's beginning to be a story developing of there being a different treatment. As I say, it's still a work in progress, but it will be very exciting if you can actually, you know, look at biomarkers related to inflammation, say, okay, you get this type of treatment as opposed to that, so on and so Yeah, because it's been really challenging up till now, with the exception of the unipolar-bipolar distinction, to make any sensible prediction about what medicine might work for for someone with unipolar depression. I mean, we all generally start with SSRIs, but they're not brilliant, and we can't. We certainly can't predict who's going to respond, can we? Well, yeah. I mean, I think SSRIs are probably better than we think. And if you look at Elias Erickson, 
from Gothenburg's analysis of the 6,000 patients in the SSRI registration trials that they had to go through to get their license. I mean, they're pretty impressive safe drugs, but they won't work for everyone. Depression is so common. There's a big rot of people who need something else. Of course, you know, that's even after you've added in CBT and things like that. And that's why the, the Kessman approach and the psychedelic approach are so exciting because these are novel approaches to, to pharmacological treatment. And at least in the case of psychedelics, they're a combination of a relatively new pharmacological approach with also a psychotherapeutic aspect built in to the therapeutic package, which I think is a, which is a really good development because it's sort of, you know, it boggles my mind that we haven't always done this. And, uh, you know, we try to look at drugs in isolation because that's not the way they're used clinically. You don't get them from a bending machine. You get them from a clinician with whom hopefully you have a therapeutic relationship. Just before I leave Kessman, because I know we haven't really talked about it, you want to talk about psychedelics. No, I want to talk about ketamine because I know you were one of the leaders in the uh, in these breakthrough studies of, of S-ketamine, weren't you? Well, that's right. I mean, S-ketamine is, uh, most ketamine is a racemic mixture of RNS. And our colleagues and friends in NIMH, Zarate and Dennis Charney actually was instrumental in lots of it. They gave infusions of ketamine, which of course is a dissociative anesthetic. What's interesting, if you look at the couple hundred people who've had that, is that uh, ketamine seems to be just as effective for bipolar depression, if not more effective than for unipolar. So it seems to work in both. And that's that to me is interesting. The other thing, and I've talked to Carlos a lot about this, is there's very, I haven't really been able to find any reports of ketamine making people manic. And that's actually very different from most effective antidepressants. And I've even said that I think it'd be very interesting to look at ketamine to see if it is anti-manic. You know, not only does it not cause... <laughs> that would be a... Yeah. yeah I think Carlos looked at me as if I was a bit mad. <laughs> the jet lag had hit me on the trip to Washington. But but no, I, I think it would be interesting because certainly we are doing a systematic review, which, you know, is a troll of the world literature to look at the incidence of manic switch with ketamine. But I can't think of of something about many times that I've seen it. So there may be something about the master switch, which means that you don't have this particular side effect. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting because it does talk to one of the things I will come back to in a little while when we talk about psychedelics. But the interesting thing, so we have ketamine, which of course was an anesthetic and used for many decades and then moved into becoming a, a fast-acting antidepressant. And, and then it was developed as a nasal spray rather than an injection, wasn't it? And that's now got a license in a number of countries, uh, I think including Britain, although it's not yet on the NHS. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think the great thing about the nasal S ketamine is that they took a, and this is the drug company, Janssen Janssen, it was Husseini Manji, who really was a psychiatrist like you or I, who went to work for Johnson Johnson and got them to invest a fortune, you know, hundreds of millions in take, and taking this treatment through all the uh, stringent trials to get a license in America, Canada, Britain, Europe, and so on. And it passed it. Now, it gets lots of criticism from people like NICE, it seems so far. But the trials, they actually started, the people had failed at least two antidepressants on a third antidepressant, whether they got S-ketamine or the dummy placebo. And we know that 
probably about 15% of them would respond to that. So S-ketamine wasn't competing against an inert comparison group. There was actually actual treatment in it. But still, it, I mean, I'm fairly convinced with the data. We've had people who respond nicely to that. But you can give ketamine in a variety of ways. But the key question is bioavailability. I think you're just about to say, can you explain bioavailability? So, Please. <laughs> <laughs> well, very simply, when you give an infusion of ketamine, you know that it all gets into your blood. But if you take it orally, then the percentage that gets through to the blood will be markedly reduced because of metabolic enzymes in the liver and other places. So we're just about to publish in the May edition of the Journal of Psychopharmacology, which you used to edit, Dave, and I now edit, a nice systematic review of the different levels in the blood you get, whether you give S-ketamine as an infusion, whether you give it subcutaneously, whether you give it orally. And of course, it ranges from infusion being topped with 100% down to orally, where it's, you know, may only be a small fraction of that, perhaps 10, 10 to 20%. The key thing would be if we could get an oral form, and this is really about how it's delivered, how it gets through the, the body to the blood, which is higher bioavailability. And you know, trials trials are going on with preparations that may deliver that. So that's encouraging and, and novel. But of course, we've already touched on it briefly, but we'll come back to it in detail now. There's the, the other fast-acting antidepressive drugs, or the psychedelics. And one of the things that you guys have really pioneered and invested a lot in it down at King's College and uh, the Institute of Psychiatry is in, in psychedelic research. So, and you're, you've become, I think, you know, quite a supporter of that. Would you like to share with us, you know, why you're being supportive and why you've set up such a, a big venture there? Well, I mean, I think all credit to you, Dave. I mean, you really kicked off and I think you were brave and clever enough and, you know, perhaps willing to take the heat for saying that these drugs, which legally are thought to be bad, might actually be possibly good. They might be therapeutic options. And, you know, we all know the story that they were used a lot in psychotherapy and there was a big history in the 50s, 60s, albeit with trials that, you know, probably have the same relationship to our sophisticated trials now as the the car that, you know, previous generations drove compared to, I think you drive a Bentley, don't you, Dave? So compared to that, you know, or my Ford Fiesta, which is a very efficient. Kite, kite. <laughs> and they were banned probably for political reasons. And you, uh, Robert Carhart Harris and so on, really led the way and against terrible, probably the word is cultural. I um, mean, there was a cultural belief. This became part of the culture because culture can change. And I think there's been a bit of a change. There was always the counterculture, which didn't believe that these yes. are bad drugs. And one of the important things is James Rucker, who did lots of work with you and chemo to us, found when he and I and colleagues looked at the literature is there isn't a terrible, I mean, there isn't really much of a signal of safety problems with these drugs. They've been, you know, whether it's psilocybin or the others, they may not be available like aspirin, but they have been taken a lot over the years. And the landmark paper, of course, was yours, where you looked at the ratio between benefits and harms for different drugs, whether they were legal or illegal. You said it was reasonable to consider, you know, alcohol with heroin, with psilocybin, with this, that, and the other. So I think the scene was set. But of course, James and I, I think, summed it up in a paper that really James wrote called From Serendipity to Credibility. So 
I mean, I think the serendipity is, and the, the scenes being set by yourselves and others, of course, you're still very active in all of this, but there's an awful lot of work to be done to build the portfolio of data about the benefits and harms of these drugs in different conditions, because, you know, they may be beneficial in treatment-resistant depression, but then they may not be beneficial or they may be disadvantageous in, say, borderline personality disorders. Well, that's right. But you, you've actually got a center there now, haven't you? I think you, know, you inject in the hospital. Yes. Well, I mean, one of the key things was, again, this was done. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir here, telling them what to sing. But one of the key things was getting medicinal quality psilocybin. Of course, you did that. You worked with Compass, who are the pharmaceutical company. Compass, I've been working with us and with James. James also has, I mean, to the great credit, he's got funding and a grant from our NIHR, the National Institutes of Health Research, to do this. So we've got investment from there as well. But Compass have invested with King's College and with SLAM, our NHS partner, South London and Mosley Trust, to invest quite a lot of money into a centre so we can do all lots of do as many of these trials as we can and also be a centre for training and education for other therapists. So we've got studies underway in treatment-resistant depression, there are studies underway in post-traumatic stress disorder, we're looking at studies in perhaps anorexia and so on and so forth. So, you know, I mean, there's there's a whole long series of studies that can be done. And have you met any resistance? Have you met, or is it, has it been, you've been well, you know, has this new approach been generally well received? Because I think maybe I should just say something else. People may not completely understand it. We have a lot of international listeners and even UK listeners. They may not quite understand how, how eminent the Institute of Psychiatry is. When it endorses an approach, then it generally means that the rest of the psychiatry community falls in line. So it's impressive that you've done it, and I'm grateful that you have. But has it has it been challenging, or has it has been has it been open arms? It's not been. I mean, it's we've had no negativity at all. In fact, we've had huge support, particularly from our NHS colleagues from SLAM. I mean, SLAM have been terrific, and they've embraced this in a way which. I think was really touching and, you know, particularly people on the slam board who've got lived experience and so on. The only negative comment I've ever received was when I gave a talk at a, a very, very eminent center in the United States. And un unlike these days where you give talks uh, <laughs> remotely, this was before lockdown and I gave a talk about psychedelics and I talked about this and I said many of the things that, you know, showed, showed your data, showed our plans and I showed this, that and the other. And afterwards, one of the very eminent biological psychiatrists came up to me and said, I don't know why you're bothering with that stuff. We all took that in college, you know. So, <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, that, that might mean something. So that's the... You're still here anyway, aren't you? Yeah, you're still here. And you're still, <laughs> still negative 50 years later. But generally, we've had huge amounts of support. And I think that's one of the things that's interesting about the field of psychedelics is that the enthusiasm, I mean, the enthusiasm can sometimes tip over to evangelism. And we've got to be aware that we've got to apply the stringent, you know, uh, cold dowsing of you know, logic and so on. A bit like I said about the stress hormones, you know, the stress hormones where, where I thought I knew the answer as a, as a wet behind the ears, young psychiatric registrar. And I find exactly those. I remember being shocked, actually. And it's the biggest learning experience of my scientific career that you can do something. I have this uh, statement 
I've twice in my life I've done experiments which gave me exactly the opposite result. And the one thing is, you know, it's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's no way you're kind of massaging the data. You're suddenly being hit between the eyes with this, hang on, how do I make sense of this? So I think we've got to do the experiments and just see see where it leads us. But there's a freshness and enthusiasm. And it leads us back to why we're in psychopharmacology. And I mean, I can remember as a as a trainee, you know, when I was just starting out in psychiatry, being astonished at drugs working. So you'd have someone who was manic, you'd treat them and you know, two weeks, a week, two weeks later they'd be transformed. So someone who was depressed, you go with antidepressants, you call them up, they'd get better. And it didn't. It still astonishes me that drugs work in this way. Now, I know there's placebo effect, I know there's a psychological component, but the fact that there's, indu- it goes back to guys, two and a half facts, you know, the fact that drugs work at all. I mean, the, the great example is, to my mind, the greatest example is lithium. You have a third of people with bipolar one disorder who do well on this cation, and it changes their lives. We don't know why, we don't know the mechanism, we don't know the biomarkers, doing a big European study at the moment to find all that out. But, you know, these people who think that, in psychiatry we talk about the biopsychosocial model where we, you know, we, we think there's a biological component, social component, psychological component. Some people think it's all psychological or social. There's undoubtedly a biological component and the transformative effect of lithium for some people. I mean, lithium reduces suicide rates. I mean, that's astonishing. And not only does it reduce suicide rates in trials, as you know, it does it when there's higher amounts of lithium in the drinking water. That's right. And these, these facts to me are astonishing. Now, some of that astonishment and wonder, I would use a sense of wonder, really, which I've always had for psychopharmacology. And other people are very cynical about psychopharmacology. They think it's drug companies pushing things for a profit, you know, and so, so on and so forth, somehow perverting scientist judgment, that isn't there for psychedelics. Psychedelics have this sense of wonder about this experience being transformative for people's lives and how how this is working through the brain. And I think it's wonderful to see that come back, actually. It's just terrific. Well, it's wonderful to have someone like you uh, <laughs> saying that and campaigning for it and, uh, and also providing a rationale for it. So thank you very much for sharing your experience and vision with the uh, with our audience. Uh, and also I'll say thank you for taking over the Journal of Psychopharmacology. Uh, you a better person. Hey, it's a great pleasure. It's always nice to speak to you, Dave. And I would, you know, just hope that the journey that we're on with psychopharmacology continues because the benefits to mankind can be, uh, can be very great. Just before you finish, I was talking to a young potential PhD student came in. Of course, the psychedelics act through 5-HG through the 5-HT2 receptor. And I was saying that, you know, there's an opportunity to go back and it would be like the the salad days, you know, the, those golden days of the 80s when there were these bright young receptors looking at 5-HT and depression and so on. People like Goodwin, Cowan, and I think someone called Nuts uh, were, the, uh, were the three great figures that came out of it. And we're back at those days again. So hopefully it will be interesting times. Well, it will be. And... I'm very happy to pass the baton over to you as I get too old. So thanks, Alan, and I will see you soon, I hope. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye for now.